Hey, it's uh, no, seriously, it is a privilege to be with you. Uh, I'm so honored that whether you're, again, joining us right here or you're joining us online, that you're with us. Uh, we are in the middle of one of my favorite series we've ever done called Jesus People. And uh, so you just picked a great day to brave the roads or to cuddle up with your family online today. Uh, because what we have is really, uh, I've shared this with some of you throughout the week. Some of these messages we're sharing throughout this series have been on my heart for a long time, things that I've just felt God at work in or doing in my own life. And so as you're here, you're going to hear some of that story even today. Uh, but some of you know, in other parts of the world, Blake alluded to it, it is warmer and more tropical than it is here in Byron Center. Now, you chose to live in this area for whatever reason, and so did I, uh, but there are warmer places, and some of you are looking forward to, in a few weeks, to going to those warmer places, or you're coming back from those warmer places. Well, we have friends that live in Auckland, New Zealand, and right now they're in the middle of summer. So they're totally flipped as to the seasons like we are. And so it's summer in New Zealand, and we FaceTimed with them recently just to check up on life. And I was reminded, so I lived there a year uh, after high school, and I was reminded of how many things that are just part of like New Zealand, like Kiwi lingo that we don't say here. And so I thought uh, just as a way of beginning the morning, getting you engaged, making sure you're, even though it's nice and toasty in here, that you're warm and you're awake, uh, we're going to play a little game. And so what I want to do is I'm going to say a word. I'm going to give you a piece of New Zealand lingo, and then I'm going to give you a few seconds to shout out what you think it actually means, and then we're going to show you the picture on the screen. Does that make sense? So I'm going to, sh I'm going to give you the piece of lingo, give you the Kiwi term, you got to shout out what you think it actually means. If you say it right, you get the prize of just being right. And then uh, we'll show you what the picture actually is. Makes sense? So we got three of these, so you have a little bit of time to get adjusted. All right, number one, first word is the New Zealand word maccas, M-A-C-C-A-S. Any guesses? This could go terribly wrong, but here we are. So just if, type it in the chat if you're watching online. It's much safer. But uh, just throw out, what do you think maccas means? Cookies, coconuts, fruit, somebody else. Shoes, okay, I'll take that. Any, give me one more, one more. McDonald's, interesting. Interesting that you say that because the word Maccas actually means McDonald's. You get the prize of being right. <laughs> the prize of being right. Uh, yes, now that you're all hungry, let's move on to the second one. So the first word, Maccas, it's shorthand for McDonald's. They would commonly say like, hey, mate, let's go down to Maccas and get a Big Mac. Like that's what they'd say. And so, or they still say, I should, is what I should say. But I was always confused. I was total culture shock. I was like, that just sounds like you want to kiss something or someone. I don't want to Maccas with you at all. Like I'm <laughs> uninterested in doing that. Um, and so that was a culture shock to me just to hear it for the very first time when I was there. And they said it the other day on FaceTime. Uh, let's skip to the next one. Okay, here's, we'll give you the word, give you a couple seconds to respond, and then we'll show you what it actually means. All right, word number two is jandals. J-A-N-D-A-L-S. Jandals, all right? Flip-flops. Flip okay, somebody else? So going with the shoot theme here in the front row. Anybody else? You're going with that? Final answer is the church. You're letting him decide for you? <laughs> okay, here we go. The answer is, oh, that's totally the wrong picture. So it is flip-flops. So yeah, I'm serious. I must have mixed up the order, but it is literally flip-flops. Like you just nailed that. I don't know how you knew that. It's kind of freaky, but yeah. 
All right, so now that you already know the third one, the word is togs, and we're just going to move on. And that (laughs) illustration was just totally busted by my (laughs) disorganization. So, uh, but the third word is togs, in case you're wondering. And when the first person said, like, hey, make sure we're going to the beach, Uh, you got your surfboard, yes. You got your uh, jandals, yes. You got your togs. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) I don't know. I'm wearing swimsuit, like a swimsuit. Does that count? And so anyway, it was funny, but it just didn't work out in that moment. (laughs) But jandals is funny because I asked, like, can you define this for me? And they said, well, sandals are kind of like a step up. Like, you can wear, like, maybe we think of them as Birkenstocks in our culture. Like, it's kind of a step up. It's not totally as, as weird as wearing a pair of Old Navy uh, flip-flops to, like, a Ruth Chris or something. You can maybe get away with the, with the Burks there. But uh, jandals is like the lowest totem pole of sandals. So you got sandals, and it's like, yeah, you're cheap, so you're wearing some jandals. So that's how I figured that out. But it was total culture shock. And there were things all throughout the years, um, even friends I have that still live there, and they'll say things. I'm like, you're going to have to interpret that for me. I've got no clue what you're talking about. And there were just certain norms and behaviors even in the culture that were totally shocking to me. Uh, You know what culture shock feels like, even if you've never crossed or gotten an airplane and crossed over into another continent. Uh, You know what it feels like when you go into a new work team or work department, or maybe some of you started a new job this year. It's like, wow, the culture's way different than I'm used to. It's just they use different language. They have different values. They behave differently. Um, Some of you know this if you're preparing to marry into new families, right, as you're beginning that process, and it's like, uh, yeah, my family does not do breakfast that way. Or no, we don't actually leave the dishes in, a, in the dish, like for a whole weekend. Like, no, we actually clean those up. Like there are things in families that even culturally are different. I remember when Lindsay and I, uh, three and a half, nearly four years ago now, moved here to Grand Rapids. And uh, we kind of took one, one spin through downtown and, and hung out with some of you. It's like, wow, literally everyone drinks beer here. Literally everyone. It's like better than water, like craft beers. And we moved from Detroit. It's like a different culture, honestly, a different place. Uh, The roads are just as bad, but the drinking habits are much, much different than what I grew up around. And so uh, moving over here, there were some things even culturally for for us. And, And you know, if you have been to a new country or you've been to kind of a work trip in another country in Europe or in South America, or maybe you've been on a mission trip, you've experienced like the true culture shock that happens. It's disorienting. Sometimes it's frustrating. Sometimes it's stressful. Uh, For some of you, you like it. And it's like new opportunity, potential. Like I get to get to be flexible. I get to adapt. Uh, I get to learn something. Uh, But here's what I want to say when it comes to uh, our spiritual lives, when it comes to our own unique journeys following after Jesus, here's what I believe. And what we're going to dig into today is that if we are truly following Jesus, we should experience culture shock daily, daily, in the spiritual sense. You shouldn't walk around and be like, I don't know where things are in family fair. Like, I'm not expecting that to happen. But spiritually, you and I are in a world, in a culture, even in a community in which things are broken and not the way Jesus intended them to be. And for you and I to truly follow Jesus and to surrender to him, there should be some things you and I face that just make us feel different, that that give us a little taste of kingdom culture shock when we're interacting with people around us. Because here's the tension that you and I live in every single day, is that I want Jesus to be Lord, but I do not like culture shock. 
I want Jesus to be Lord, but I do not like being uncomfortable. I want Jesus to be Lord, but I do not like him telling me how to run my own life. And those things are at odds with one another. And the beautiful part about this series is that you and I have picked up over the weeks that we're not alone in that, that struggle and that tension. There's actually things at work in the world uh, trying to convince us that not following Jesus is actually a better way. And so in order to really understand this, I want to take you to Lansing. I want to take you to Lansing. I'm not like picking sides with Spartans right now. I'm just saying I want to take you to Lansing because Lansing is about 70-ish miles from Byron Center and around the same size as the city we're going to look at today. Today, we're going to, to travel back in time to Pergamum. Pergamum essentially was the Lansing of the Roman Empire. And so it's about the same distance, about the same size, and similar influence in terms of the regional culture of the place that these Christians were living in. And so I want to take you to Lansing. Now, you remember the map we've been kind of using? Really, we're going in a clockwise direction. This followed a Roman mail route. And so as you travel around here, we went from Smyrna, which is about 70 miles south of where we're headed to, in Pergamum today. Now, if you and I were on a road trip driving into the city limits of Pergamum, here's one of the first things we would see. We would see a eight-story high, a 112 feet wide altar to the god Zeus. Culture shock point one, right? You're a Christian, you're driving in, and you don't see a cross, you don't see a bunch of cute brick churches, you don't see all the things, you don't see any Christian schools, you don't see any of that, you just see a massive god representing the power of the Roman Empire and the Greek gods. That's the altar that people are worshiping at and bringing sacrifices and orienting their entire lives around. That's what you drive in to see. You'd look up on your left and a massive amphitheater, one that's actually still present today. It's an incredible just feat of architecture. And you look at it, it's incredibly high because this would pack thousands and thousands of people in to watch these plays, but it wasn't just mere entertainment. In this particular theater, in this particular city, often what would happen is these plays would be interwoven with idol worship, alcoholism, sexual immorality. And if you were an adult male in Pergamum, you pretty much were expected to show up to these theaters. And if you didn't, you would experience some real culture shock and backlash, people wondering, why are you not going to the theater? That's what we all do. And there would be decisions you have to make as a follower of Jesus and him being Lord. Uh, in Pergamum, natively, they were worshiping a Greek god uh, over doctors and medical physicians called Asclepius. And Asclepius' name really just means great healer. And so picture you and I having to go to urgent care and them asking, hey, just quick question before we keep going. Do you follow Jesus as Lord or are you declaring like, are you good with the Roman emperor being Lord and king over our, our land and all that? Are you good with that? And you have a quick decision to make. Do I receive urgent care or do I keep following Jesus as Lord? Because as soon as you said that, it'd be like, oh, sorry, we can't see you. You're a Christian? Sorry, we just can't, can't give you any services. You're going to have to turn around and figure it out yourself. This is the reality of being a Christian, being a, a Christ follower in Pergamum. And Pergamum was also famous, and as you look back over Christian history, for uh, housing one of the very first martyrs. 
and Antipas, who had this incredible artwork of Antipas. Antipas was an 83-year-old Christian who, when asked, do you serve the emperor as Lord or do you serve Jesus? He said, Jesus. They said, perfect. We're going to light the fires right now, and you're done. And he died for the faith. This is the tension. This is the culture shock Pergamum churches and Christ followers were encountering. I mean, picture your grandfather having to make that decision. Picture your friend having to make that decision. You're not enjoying retirement because you're preparing for a funeral. This is the culture shock of Pergamum. I mean, emperor worship, Roman worship had been established in Pergamum for almost a century. And of all these cities, this was a place where it had its strongest hold. And this sets up Jesus' letters to his church in Revelation 2. We're going to start in verse 12. So if you have a Bible or you need to scroll there really quick, uh, we're going to look at these couple verses together in, in Revelation. And here's what John writes as a revelation from Jesus himself. Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live. Kind of creepy words from Jesus. I don't know about you. I don't want him saying that, even though he probably already knows. But he says, I know where you live, where Satan himself has his throne. He's talking about Pergamum. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Quick pause there, because John is kind of leveraging through the words of Jesus, this Old Testament reference to Balaam and Balak, these other nations and influences in the Israelite people. You can scroll back in your Bible to find those. And essentially, they were kind of the prime examples for for the culture subverting the church, for the culture stepping in, sweeping in, and causing the church to believe things that, that God didn't say, to behave in ways God did not condone, to begin sleeping around, to begin sacrificing to other idols and kind of mixing it with the worship of Yahweh. This is what he's saying is happening in Pergamum. They had lost their way. These external and internal forces were at work. Verse 15, Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You may remember this from a few weeks ago. Nicolaitans were this group of people that essentially said, all that matters is what's in your head, what's in your mind. What you do with your body and the behavior you practice has no bearing on your following of Jesus. You can essentially do whatever you want as long as you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe that, or yes, I believe in God, or yes, I will, I will submit to God in my thoughts. They just believed that they had the corner market on, on what real following of Jesus looked like. And Jesus is saying, no, no, you, you also hold to that. You've also lost your way because God is not just interested in you, what you think in your mind. He's also concerned with your body and consecrating your whole self to God. You keep going in verse 16. Here's the call to action from Jesus. He says, repent, therefore, which literally just means turn around. Go the opposite direction of the way you're going now. Repent. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them, talking about the Pergamum church here, with the sword of my mouth. I will divide the real followers 
from the fake ones. I will divide households that maybe are not fully in allegiance to Jesus as Lord and have mixed in teachings, mixed in ways of behaving that are not necessarily in alignment with me. He ends by saying, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. We're going to talk about that bit in just a minute, but what I want to look back on is if you had to summarize what Jesus is saying and the rebuke he's giving out to the Pergamum church, I think it would be this, that Jesus wants to be Lord of your whole life. All of you, if you follow Jesus for any length of time, cognitively just agreed with me. <laughs> yes, that, that makes total sense. You should. That, that's why I followed Jesus in the first place. Like, we should do that. Yeah, he wants my whole life. But when you get into the nitty-gritty of your life, does he have lordship over all of your life? And my answer is often probably not. Your answer may be definitely not or probably not. I mean, there's areas of our life that we tend to leave untouched and uncovered to the very God who created us, and it's totally backwards. And what Jesus is saying here is don't get mixed in with the practices of the people around you. Don't get mixed in with the way of thinking or believing or even uh, saying, well, I guess I could mix a little Jesus with a little bit of Nicolaitan. I guess I could mix a little Jesus with a little bit of Balaam or a little bit of Balak. All these people that were trying to subvert the very culture that God was trying to create through his kingdom. Jesus wants to be Lord of your whole life. Even the dirty parts, even the parts you're embarrassed about, even the parts that your spouse doesn't understand, even the parts of your parenting that you think are perfect that you know are not perfect. Yeah, Jesus wants to be Lord of your entire self, your whole life. Let me take this one step further and just observation here. This is not biblical teaching from Revelation. This is John. This is John talking. What I've observed and picked up is that I think our community, I'm talking about where you and I live, work, and play, I think our community is relatively unfazed by people who make Jesus Lord of their Sunday. Because that's what a lot of people already have done. It's, it's really not too unique. Now, what I want to say is I applaud you. I applaud you for being here. I applaud you for taking this step in your own spiritual formation to grow and to learn and to be challenged and to worship together. I'm not downplaying this gathering. But what I want to say is that I just, as I interact with leaders here in our community and even people who are not followers of Jesus, it's expected in some ways that you would check a box that says you're a Christian or expected that your kids would claim to be Christians or expected that you would show up to church every couple, a couple times a year just to, to kind of check the spiritual box that you did that and you can move on. It's a dangerous and vicious cycle. And this is exactly the trap Pergamum Christians were wrestling with. And Jesus is saying, friends, I want to be Lord of your entire life, all of your existence. I didn't come to change your mind or just change your habits or change your rhythms on a weekend. What I came to change was your entire operating system, your entire existence, your life. I want to be Lord of your whole life. And what's really encouraging to me is uh, Wednesday night we prayed together and just worshiped in our new space. Of, again, a glorified cement box at this point. But as we're going through the process, it will get better. 
But we were there and we were worshiping and we were celebrating just what God had done. And someone came up to me at the very end and just said, you know, it's been interesting because so much of my life has been centered around like worship services, like even my own spiritual journey. And he said, largely my life wasn't really affected in the, in the in-between times. Like Monday to Saturday, I pretty much was the same person. Sunday was the only thing that really changed. He said, actually the step God has been encouraging me, he's been challenging me with is to limit time on Facebook and limit time that I watch the news every day, <laughs> which would be a good practice for all of us in general. But he said, that's just kind of the way that God has been teaching me. He's been leading me to do this. And I said, wow. I mean, talk about Jesus being Lord of your whole life, not sectioning off parts of my life. Lindsay and I had a discussion this week. I was processing this for myself and saying, God, where, where's uncovered? Where's untouched for me? And a couple areas just came right up to the surface. Number one, uh, God was in, inviting me, and I believe is inviting me, to, to make my morning routine more centered around him and not less of myself. Instead of just doing the things I want to do or sleeping the way I want to sleep or you name it, just inviting me to spend time with him, more concentrated, to be more disciplined in that with workouts and food and just how I'm structuring my day, saying, Jesus, you can be Lord of my Google calendar t this time. <laughs> I'm not going to micromanage my life. I'm going to let you just rule, and I'm going to let you steer me and guide me. Now, that may be really, really simple. For some of you, the step needs to be much more big than that. It may need to be a healed relationship. It may need to be a total restructuring of your financial world. It may need to be a different job or, or a different decision you need to make this week than you're planning on making. But friends, here's the encouragement. Jesus wants to be Lord of your whole life. And if you trust him, if you trust him with your whole life, <laughs> he will live the way you were always intended to live, dependent, surrendered, open, full of grace, full of truth, just in the way that Jesus was. In fact, we were praying earlier, and this is, as I was sitting here, I was thinking, this truth is exactly why anyone is welcome at Center Church. Not just welcome, but actually wanted. Like we want people who don't feel like they fit anywhere else. We want people who feel far from God and don't know how do I even begin a relationship with Jesus. This is the reason, the factor that we're moving into our own space is to keep that mission going forward, to see zero lives unchanged. The cross itself makes us equals. And Jesus gets to be Lord. We are unapologetically Jesus people. Like we are not going to apologize or change how we're interacting and operating in the world. But what gets confusing is that in our culture, we have flipped that equation. We have said, actually, all ideas and allegiances and idols and belief systems and convictions, those are equal, and the people are not equal. The people, we cancel them. We tarnish their name. We make fun of them. We gossip. We slander them, whether it's online or in person. But all ideas, all convictions, all beliefs, those are all equal playing field. And Jesus is, is kind of saying, actually, that's not true. There are certain ideas, convictions, and beliefs, and allegiances at work in your culture, in our culture, that are not equal. But all people are. And all people are loved and cherished by God. This is one of the reasons Jesus begins this letter by saying, I've come essentially with a sharp, double-edged sword. Some of you remember New Testament writers re referencing this in the past. Hebrews, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged 
sword. You may remember Paul talking about the fact that Jesus himself, our, our Lord, our King, was full of grace and full of truth. Like a sword, two edges, no compromise. He stood firm on his convictions and, and what God was doing. But that's why we're Jesus people. He gets to be Lord over our lives. He gets to carry the sword, if you will. This was a common, I mean, you'll see this over and over again throughout this series, that over and over again, the writers, John and Revelation, will use these Roman emperor-based terms, like sharper than a two-edged sword was a Roman term to say, by the way, the emperor carries the power of life and death. And Jesus is saying, you got the phrase right, but you got the person wrong. It's about me. I'm the first and last. I carry the power of life and death. His kingdom is greater. One of the interesting things is you, as you trace back just the histories of these communities, this history of the churches, there was actually a picture I stumbled across of Zeus's altar now. And I think about God's kingdom being greater. I think about just this image of, of Zeus's altar. If you traveled with me to Pergamum, you would see a field and a couple big rocks. And that's what's left of Zeus's altar. His kingdom didn't turn out to be greater than God's kingdom. The only kingdom that still stands and still remains and still firm is our Father's kingdom. It's where you and I live and operate, right? The only one we can really trust in and put hope in, invest our lives and sacrifice ourselves for, is His kingdom. John Wesley, who's kind of the founder of our denomination, uh, way back in England, made a decision. He had kind of a line in the sand moment. Is God going to have parts of my life and just my Sunday mornings? Or is God going to rule and to reign over my life? And he wrote this in his journal. He said, I resolve to dedicate all of my life to God. Again, something you and I mentally, we all assent to. We all check the box. And he keeps going. But he said, all my thoughts and words and actions, being thoroughly convinced there was no medium there was no compromise. There was no middle ground. But that every part of my life must either be a sacrifice to God or myself. A sacrifice to God or my way of doing things. A sacrifice to God or my decision-making process that's obviously wiser than God. <laughs> my sacrifice to God or it's going to end up being all about me. And if you're looking to turn the corner on this, because I had to do this in my last couple days as I was preparing for this message, I had to actually think through what does this mean for me? What does this look like for me? And I think it's, it's revealed as you look at kind of the ending part of this letter to the church in Pergamum. Verse 16, here's what Jesus says is the next step. He says, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It's this really interesting play between repentance and urgency. Because Jesus wants all of your life. That, that causes us to have a moment of culture shock and then a decision. Because you and I get to walk out of here in our free will and our agency and say, actually, I don't want to do that. Actually, I'd prefer to keep it my way. Actually, Jesus, you can have this, 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 and this, but definitely not this. You can be Lord, just don't touch my sexuality. You can be Lord, just don't touch my finances. You can be Lord. Just don't, don't touch my career path or my decision-making process. You can be Lord. Just don't touch my kids. You can be Lord, but just don't touch sports. 
<laughs> you, you can be Lord, just don't touch my betting on sports. You can be Lord, just don't touch what I do on the weekend. Please, Jesus, don't do that. But Jesus is saying the invitation is just to repent and, and to repent of that way of thinking and living that's so backwards, the way that you and I were actually created. Repentance plus urgency is the thing that leads to a transformed life. It's that equation that sometimes we mix. And I want to give you a word of warning and caution that I've faced in my own life with this. See, repentance minus urgency leads to a constant life of self, self-loathing. It's a hamster wheel of a sin cycle that you and I know what it feels like to be in. I'm going to do this. God, I'm really sorry. I'll never do it again. Next week, I do it again. God, I'm really sorry. I'll never do it again. I do it again. God, I will never get addicted to that thing, that place, that person again. And then I do it again. It's no greater than the person who attends the Catholic confessional goes home the next day and does the exact same things. Feeling a little better in the moment, but the life has not been transformed. Repentance without that urgency, that Jesus is coming soon, that Jesus is coming back, that that his lordship and his kingdom is the one that has no end, it will cause us to live in that sin cycle over and over again. Can I just be totally transparent? I don't think Jesus, and I definitely do not want that life for you. It's awful. It's exhausting. It's full of shame and guilt that you are never wired to, to, to carry. That's why the cross exists. And on the other hand, some of you are wrestling with this right now. You have the urgency, but you have not yet taken the step to repent. You have the urgency. Yeah, I know Jesus is coming back. And yeah, I know all the things you're preaching about. John, Revelation, I got the whole thing memorized. Or, or I know all the theories. I know all the numbers. I know the codes. I know all these things. I've got kind of my head. You got your head in the clouds, but you're missing the, the gravity of how Jesus wants to define and to be Lord over your entire life. It's a life detached from the reality. When you have that urgency but no repentance, it becomes about everybody else and never about you. But repentance plus urgency leads to a transformed life. It's the way you and I actually make Jesus Lord of our entire lives and we face the culture shock and we make decisions despite the shock. And so the baseline question for you and for me to wrestle with is what do we need more of? Today, do I need to repent or do I need to get urgency? Do I need God to give me urgency and and motivation and drive and passion to not just be content with life the way it is, but to know that he's coming and he's coming back? If you want Jesus to be Lord, you have to wrestle that to the ground. You have to make decisions. You have to allow him into those places of your life. And so what I wanna do, we're gonna worship as we close uh, to give us time to process and to reflect, but I would love to pray because I get this is not like the easiest thing to do. It's not the easiest thing to hear. It's not the easiest thing to really wrestle with in your own life because I've done it. I'm in the journey with you. I'm in the process with you. And so, would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that there are, there are children you love in this room and watching online right now who the scariest step for them right now is just to come clean and to repent 
to turn from ways of living, to turn from teachings, to turn from patterns of behavior and addictions, broken relationships. And just say, God, I, I confess that I'm living apart from you. I'm going to turn around by your Holy Spirit's power and by your constant daily grace. I'm gonna face the culture shock. I'm gonna allow you to change some things. I repent. And for others of us in this room, it's the need for urgency. It's the need to recognize that life is short. It's a vapor. And how we live and breathe and align our lives with you is the most important thing about us. So God, give us that urgency. Where we feel like we've got time, where we feel like we've got space, we've got the money, we've got the, the lag, we've got the flexibility, we've got whatever it is, God, that wants to deceive us into thinking that life is just a long stretch and we can make decisions or get right with you later. God, I pray right now you give us a God-given, God-breathed urgency to be in right relationship with you and to invite others into the relationship too. So Holy Spirit, thank you for doing this work in me. Thank you for challenging me this week. Thank you for challenging me yesterday about areas I was not even thinking about. So, and in God, I pray right now for the, the person who just wants to take that step, who wants to keep moving forward in their relationship with you. God, give them the grace. Give them that hidden manna, that supernatural provision. Give them that innocence, that purity. That white stone, whatever that means in their own life today. I pray that you would just show up, be tangible to them in this moment as we respond to you. In Jesus' name.